to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Ephesians chapter 5. Last week we, we looked at the first two verses which told us what love is. And today we'll look at some verses that demonstrate what love is not. What love is and then what love is not. Ephesians is divided into two parts. We have talked about this many, many times, and really never has it, gonna, has it been more important to understand that than it is going to be tonight. The first three chapters of Ephesians were heavy into theology, heavy into doctrine. And one of the doctrines that was most heavily stressed was, was the doctrine of salvation. All the many, many blessings that are the believers as a result of what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did for each of us. Now, these facts are critical. I'm, I'm saying absolutely critical for us to understand a very, very difficult verse tonight. So that's why I keep pounding this into us to where, where we know this in our sleep, that Ephesians is written to believers, not to unbelievers. The message of Ephesians is for believers. And before we get to the application section, Paul makes sure in the first three chapters in this theology section, in this doctrinal section, he makes sure that we have a decent understanding of what's been done for us in salvation. The key thing is here, what's been done for us. Ephesians is written to believers. Ephesians is not written to unbelievers as a test to see whether they're believers or not. That's not what Ephesians is about. Ephesians is written to believers to call us, on the basis of what happens in the first three chapters, to call us to a life where we walk in unity, where we walk in holiness, where we walk in love, where we walk in light, and where we walk in wisdom. Unity was chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We, walk, we learned about walking in holiness in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We're in this section right now about what it means to walk in love, both from a positive and a negative standpoint. Uh, after we finish this, we'll move on to a section that, that calls upon the believer to walk in light or to have a lifestyle that's characterized by light, and we'll talk about that pretty soon. And then finally, in chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul will speak about what it means to walk in wisdom. Now, we're in an extremely, extremely important part of the Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The first, five, first six verses of Ephesians chapter 5, they read like this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. This is one of the hard verses. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. One more time, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is written to believers. It's not written to unbelievers. Paul is speaking in the application section, the last three chapters. He's telling believers how they should live in a way that's consistent with who they are in Christ, as opposed to 
like a lot of us do sometimes, live in, a, live in a way that's consistent with who we used to be before we came to Christ. Or, in the, in the case of the Ephesian believers, some of the Ephesian believers were living in a way that was more consistent with the Gentile unbelievers in their area than with what Paul says ought to be our behavior as we walk in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. Now, this section about the believer walking in love, the two the verses that we began last week, is really divided up into two parts. The first we covered last week, that's the positive walk in love. And the model for that, of course, was Jesus himself. And the, the highest expression of love, the highest expression of selflessness, not selfishness, but selflessness, of course, was him, him giving himself for us. Now, tonight, we're going to look at it from the other perspective the negative or abstaining from evil, what love is not. Last week we talked about what love is. Verses 1, to, one to, and 2 describe the most selfless, selfless act in all of human history, that being the cross. Christ giving himself up for us. To put it another way, the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of love ever made, ever. Paul, uh, rather, John says this as well in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. John goes on to say later that we ought to do the same thing. And then it's kind of easy for us to say, well, sure, I'll die for you. Okay, you'll die for me, but if you've got two coats and I don't have any and I'm, hungry, and I'm cold, would you give me a coat? If I'm hungry and you have the ability to feed me, would you feed me? I know you say you'll die for me, but what about the little things? Would you help me out with just the everyday things as a true expression of love? So Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is the greatest expression of love that has ever been made. We, nobody's even going to ever come close, but this is the model. Jesus, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Now, verses 3 through 6 describe the polar opposite of the cross. In, instead of describing selfless behavior, it describes selfish behavior. So we have two things. I hope you're going to hope you're tracking along with me. The first two verses describe what love is and, and a model for that, which is the cross. Verses 3 through 6 is going to describe what love is not. Several years ago, there was a movie that came out. I, I don't know how many of you remember or... or or even saw it to begin with, it, it didn't get widespread play, but it was called Green Card, Andy McDowell and Gerard Dupardieu, my, my favorite foreign actor. Um, he's just, he's, he's a tremendous uh, French actor. Well, in this film, Gerard Dupardieu pays, plays this um, man who's attempting to get a green card. He's really in the United States under false pretenses. Andy McDowell kind of befriends him, and, and she pretends that he's this incredible uh, pianist. He, he's a composer, and he's this eccentric pianist. He's a world-class pianist. And so they're at a dinner party one night, and this very, very dignified lady, it's a small dinner party, but they've got a grand piano, and there's a very dignified lady comes up to the piano, and she plays this piece that is just beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. And then they turn to Gerard Dupardieu, who is sitting on the couch, and they all say, well, would you please play for us, maestro? Oh, no, 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 I, I, can't, I can't do that. You know, I'm, 
And then Andy McDowell says, oh, no, he just got here. He's jet lagged. Let's don't make him do that. Well, you know how they do it. They come on, come on, come on, come on, if you remember the film. And finally, he, he, he approaches the piano, and he sits down at the piano, and everybody wonders what in the world is he going to do because he doesn't play the piano. <laughs> and you know, he's going to blow his whole thing right now. He's, he's, the whole scheme is going to be exposed. And he sits down at the piano, and if, if any of you know, he's got a very distinct look in this movie. He had real long hair, and, and he starts just pounding on the piano and, and just making this incredibly bad noise. And he does it for an extended period of time, and all these people are looking around like, who is this fellow? He obviously is, is not who he says he is. Either that or he's some sort of avant-garde musician, and this is something we're supposed to like. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, sometimes some, certain of the people at the party, particularly this one older gentleman, thinks he's supposed to like it. It must be good if he's a maestro. But it's just terrible. And then he has one of the most classic lines of, of movies of that generation, I think. When he finishes, there's just stunned silence in the room. And everybody looks at him, and then people are looking at Andy McDowell like, what, you, what have you done? And he just says in a real deadpan voice, well, it's not Mozart. <laughs> well, th in other words... It wasn't any good. He, he knows that. See, that's the polar opposite of what that lady had played. She had played Mozart. It was beautiful. He said, well, it's not Mozart. And I said, what we're going to see here is what love is not. And sometimes in order to really appreciate the good stuff, you got to hear some bad stuff. If, if we're really to appreciate what, what a good pianist would sound like, we need to at least be familiar with what maybe a mediocre pianist or maybe a terrible pianist would, would sound like as well. So what we're going to see tonight is we know what love was with regard to the cross. That's the highest expression of love we could possibly uh, even imagine. But what is love's opposite? What is love's opposite? That's what these verses will describe. Now, I, again, before we get to especially verses 5 and 6, especially these two verses, we need to remember that Paul is speaking to believers. Now, he wouldn't be speaking to believers about the things that we're about to mention, and some of them are pretty strong, quite frankly. These are very adult subjects, if I could put it that way. But he's speaking to believers about avoiding this kind of behavior. Now, he wouldn't speak to believers about avoiding this kind of behavior unless some of the Ephesian believers were engaged in this kind of behavior. Keep that in mind as we look at this extremely important passage. Now, one of the things you want to make sure you do when you do Bible study, either in a class like this or if you're doing it on your own as well, be very careful in observation. Now, the first thing you should observe about verse 3 is it begins with a, a conjunction. They call it an adversative conjunction. It's the word but. That's, so what we have here is a very strong contrast to the expression of love. Everybody following that? This is, this is going to be the polar opposite of what he has just spoken about. Now, what is the polar opposite of true, real, genuine Christian love look like? What's the polar opposite of selflessness? Well, it would be selfishness. So these behaviors that are going to be pointed out here are all going to be, at their core, selfish behaviors that are not an expression of love. Even though, in some circles, some of these behaviors at least in some expressions of the, these behaviors, people use the word love with it. But it's anything but love. We pretend it is sometimes. We want to fool ourselves into thinking, no, that's really love. It's not love at all. It's the polar opposite. It's selfishness. So again, selflessness, the first two verses, 
selfishness begins in verse 3, but do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. These are things that are common among Gentile unbelievers. But they ought not to even be mentioned among the saints. Now, this the word saints there. It's a word that means set apart. That's you and me. That's all of us. That's not just uh, St. Thomas and St. John and all, all these uh, people that the Roman Catholic Church has canonized. This is all of us. Now, the term for immorality here is a term that you probably will recognize just because it's come into the Greek language. Porneia is the Greek term that is translated immorality here. Of course, it's where we get our word pornography from. But it's, it is, would be inappropriate to, to import that baggage back onto this word and think that that's all that this word describes. Porneia was a word that, that has classical Greek roots. And depending upon the context in which it was used in, in classical literature, it could mean prostitution or a prostitute. It could mean homosexuality. It could mean fornication. But essentially, this word, porneia, means any form of aberrant sexual conduct. Now, let me put that in a, in a way that perhaps might be easier to remember than aberrant sexual conduct. God has put... And we all know this. We all know it, but we need to be reminded. Otherwise, Paul would not have reminded us. God has placed boundaries upon human sexuality. But we ought never to forget that God created human sexuality in the first place. Sexuality in and of itself is not wrong. It's not bad. It's beautiful. Provided that it is practiced within the boundaries that God has placed upon it. And the boundary is the marriage relationship. So it's really pretty easy to see anything that's going to be classified as porneia is sexual activity outside of the boundaries that God gave to it. I don't know where it happened when it first happened. It was real strong in New England. Right after the pilgrims came over, you had this whole idea of Puritanism, and Puritanism didn't have strictly, it wasn't strictly an, an issue with regard to, to sexual behavior. It had, the word Puritan had much broader ramification than that. But somehow, somebody got the idea that, that sexual activity among believers should be minimized as much as possible, perhaps just for procreation. Because they, they would read verses like this. They knew what this word meant. They thought, well, well, sex itself must be bad. It's not bad. It's beautiful. It was invented by God for a specific relationship. And if practiced outside that relationship, then it becomes aberrant sexual conduct. That's the meaning here. It also includes incest, for example. Any kind of extramarital sexual Activity. I don't hope I don't need to go into a listing of all the various forms. I think you know that, but this is a very, very serious word. I, I hope that it would go without saying that this kind of activity, while common among the Gentiles, it marked the Gentiles. In the Greek world, and actually, unfortunately, a lot of times in the Roman world too, aberrant sexual behavior was a mark of their culture. It should be an embarrassing mark on their culture, but I don't think they would have considered it so. 
Now, again, we're not talking about sexual activity. We're talking about aberrant sexual activity, sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage. So I, I hope it would go without saying that this, this kind of behavior is inappropriate. I'm sure as Paul wrote this, he's thinking, as the Holy Spirit is moving, are we sure we need to write this down? Surely they know this already. This should be just really clear. But he wrote it down. Because there's always going to be this temptation that the believer will have to, to move outside of what he or she knows is proper Christian behavior and start mimicking the culture. And our culture today is, is uh, well, we talk about the sexual revolution of the 60s. I'm not sure that has stopped. Sometimes people say that, well, that's all over with. I, I don't see it being all over with. We're still, we still far too often are mimicking the culture. That's why some of the best college ministries out there, like Breakaway up at College Station at, at Texas A&M and, and others, are really stressing this to the, to the young adults at these meetings. I, last night there were, Tuesday night, they had it at Kyle Field, by the way, thousands and thousands of Texas A&M students attended that. But one of the things that, that is stressed there is that there are boundaries within human behavior. And, and this activity is good if it takes place within the boundaries. It's bad if it takes place out. So, yeah, we all know that this kind of behavior is inappropriate for Christians. But why bring it up here? <gasps> because this kind of behavior, this kind of activity, this porneia, and please, again, don't just think it means looking at stuff on the Internet. It's, it's far more than that. It's any kind of activity outside, any kind of inappropriate sexual activity outside, which is outside the marriage relationship. Porneia, or immorality, or aberrant sexual behavior, is reflective of a lack of love. It's a minute ago I told you that a lot of times love is used there. Love is used as a come on. But no, this activity, activity outside of the marriage relationship is not a reflection of love. In fact, it's the polar opposite. It's a reflection of selfishness, not selflessness. And that's why Paul's bringing it up. Uh, this, this love terminology, when, when applied to activity that comes under the category of porneia, that comes under the category of aberrant sexual activity, which is outside of marriage, is anything but love. If you really loved your neighbor's wife, you wouldn't seduce her. If you really loved her, I'm not talking, I'm talking about yourself or your own wife. If you really loved her as you pretend to, or you might pretend to, this is definitely generic youth and weeds, you wouldn't seduce her. If you really loved your boyfriend, not your husband, but if you really loved your boyfriend, you wouldn't sleep with him. Not if you really love them, because it's destructive behavior. That's what Paul is saying here. And regardless of what the culture asserts, homosexuality, which comes under the general heading of this term, it's not an act of love. Homosexuality, just like any other activity outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman, it's terrible we even have to say that. It should be self-evident, but anything outside the boundary of, of marriage between a man and a woman is selfishness. Incest is not an act of love. It's an act of perversion. It's an act of selfishness, but it's not love. It's selfish hatred. 
So let's be clear, not fool ourselves here. That's what Paul is saying. You've got this incredible demonstration of love in the cross, and then you have something that's the polar opposite. This is not Mozart. This is the polar opposite of that. Now, the second term is an interesting term as well. It's translated in the New American Standard or any impurity, akatharsia. akatharsia. This is a word that is related to porneia, but it's not exactly the same. Sometimes Paul, since he was a Hebrew thinker, he would, and the Hebrew thinkers oftentimes built synonyms upon one another with only slight changes in meaning. But here this word is related to porneo, but it's broader in scope. It does include sexual immorality, hence the tie to the previous word. But it's, re it's reflective of any kind of impurity in the life, including, now watch, the thought processes of the soul. Pornea really stressed overt action. This word, in, in immoral, or rather impurity, includes the thought processes of the soul. So we could take it one step further. To lust after one's neighbor's wife demonstrates a lack of love. That comes under this particular term. Right. Now, greed, some people wonder why greed is mentioned here. That's a good question. It doesn't seem to have any sexual overtones, but it could. Greed is selfishness to the maximum. It's not an expression of love. Gordon Gecko may think that greed is good. He's coming back, by the way, next week in the new movie, Wall Street. I don't know if he's going to repeat that line or not. I know he, said, he says in it, you've heard that I said greed is good. I don't know what his, the follow-up's going to be. Greed's not good. Not at all. Greed is selfishness. It's selfishness to the maximum. It's not an expression of love. Listen, greed is an expression of hatred, which is the opposite of love. Now, the, the fact that it's listed along with immorality and impurity may indicate that Paul is alluding to some form of sexual greed, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. If it's sexual greed, it could be self-gratification at the expense of others. We can't rule that out, but... It probably also includes just the general idea of a selfish desire for wealth and power. These are things, again, and this is so, going to be so critical. I want to I make sure I, I hold your attention into the last five minutes because it's going to really be super important. These are things that characterized, that marked the culture and the life of the Gentile unbelievers that formed the culture around the church at Ephesus. That's what this church is marked, or, or rather, no, no, no. That's what this culture is marked by. And Paul wants to make sure that we realize that in the Christian community, we should not borrow that and incorporate it into the church. We can say the same thing today. There are some sermons out there that I'm not going to repeat even some of the titles of. Because even the titles to me are personally offensive, and I'm kind of hard to offend. But where, where some of these pastors, in order to draw a crowd, are tapping into some of the buzzwords of the culture, particularly in the sexual realm, and they're, they're doing some really, really bizarre things in order to bring people in. And I've heard people say, well, that's okay. If it's bringing people in, then it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's offensive. And God can bring people in without borrowing some of the culture's sinfulness in order to to do it. If you're wondering what in the world I'm talking about, I'll be happy if you're a male, I'll happy to talk to you, to you later in my office and you can tell your wife. I'm not, I'm not going to discuss it any further 
after that. So Paul says that this kind of behavior shouldn't even be talked about, but especially shouldn't be practiced. It's not proper among the saints. Among the saints. Among the saints. Now verse 4 describes, verse, verse uh, 3, I'm sorry, describe overt activity, activity of thoughts. Now verse 4 is going to describe activity of speech. The, apparently the Gentile unbelievers in that area also had certain speech patterns that marked out their culture. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Verse 4 may, may be one of the most abused verses in all of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We want to use it properly. We want to understand what it means. Let's don't just use this as a club when we don't particularly um, like what somebody else is doing. Let's see what it really means. There should be no filthiness among you. Filthiness is synonymous with obscenity, with ugliness, with deformity, or something that causes offense or shame. That's what is meant by this Greek term translated filthiness. Obscenity, ugliness, deformity, or something that causes offense or shame. To put it another way, filthiness is disgraceful speech. If we were studying, if we were still studying James, this would be this type of speech pattern that would tear people down and not build them up. It would lead them into sinfulness. It wouldn't lead them into spirituality. It would destroy them. It wouldn't edify them. That's what is meant by filthiness. It, it certainly can include what we would call curse words, but it's so much more than that. If we just stop there, we have not understood what this passage, can't even come close to understanding what this passage means. It seems to me that there is a, Christian cultural norm. Uh, you put that in quotes, really. There's a Christian cultural norm that says, if you don't say certain words, then you've, you've attained a blessed level of spiritual maturity. And we even have our own Christian vernacular. We'll say, uh, I won't say the other words, but we'll say, shoot, heck, darn. Now we, say, we may say with the same intensity and the same anger as the other words that those represent, but we don't say those, so I must be okay. No, my friends, there are folks out there, Christian folks, that would never dream of saying anything that would offend the FCC, whatever that is anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure that there are anything that offends the FCC, except for maybe giving the gospel. <laughs> sure, but... <laughs> But these same people offend the holiness of God with their speech all the time, and they would never say one of those seven words you're not supposed to say on television. But they still have disgraceful speech. Disgraceful speech, yes, it would include speech that is offensive. Yes, of course. But if you limit it to that, you're missing the broad nature of this. You see, if you limit it, you're going to say, okay, I don't talk that way. That's for somebody else. That's somebody else that does that. No, listen, we all need to be careful about this. Every one of us. It doesn't, it's not just a particular word. It's, it's, it's the thought processes that go behind certain of our words. The whole thing about sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. 
please. Words are destructive. Words can destroy people. It can mess up marriages. It can mess up friendships. It can hurt people for life. That shouldn't. You say, well, those things shouldn't bother you. That's what we tell our kids, right? Somebody comes up and says, you're a so-and-so, and your mom or dad says, you know, I said, well, no, don't listen to them. You know, those are just words. They don't mean anything. Well, actually, they do mean things. And people ought to teach their kids to watch what comes out of their mouth. Don't say these ugly things because they're out there in the air. And as soon as we get them out of our mouth, we want to reach out and take them back and, and because we know how destructive it can be sometimes. And we've all done it. That's the point I'm trying to make. If we just say, oh, that's just those people. That's somebody else. I, you know, I have somebody in mind right now I'm going to give this tape to because I know they don't need to talk that way anymore. No, no, no. Listen to it. We need to listen to it ourselves. Anything that comes out of our minds that's shameful, that's disgraceful, that tears people down and doesn't build them up, that's what Paul is, is uh, speaking of here. All that comes under the English term filthiness. Foolish talk is almost synonymous with that, but not quite. Foolish talk is anything that distracts from spiritually edifying discussion. Anything that distracts from spiritually edifying destruction. So there must be no filthiness, no silly talk, or no foolish talk. Here's my favorite, no coarse jesting. This idea of coarse jesting, actually it's, a, it's in classical literature, it's a fairly neutral term. The Greeks love to laugh. And so anything that would make a person laugh was a positive thing for them. But it's really better translated sarcastic ridicule. Sarcastic ridicule. I love it when Christians tell jokes. Now, you got to be, you know, obviously you got to be careful with the jokes that are told. But God loves humor. Humor is just irony. That's all humor is. And God, God probably has the best sense of humor for anybody because he sees the irony in all of it. He probably looks at us and laughs all the time. Look at that guy. He's a pastor? What was I thinking when I said that? I only jest slightly. But this is an inappropriate use of irony. It's an inappropriate use of humor. This is what it is. It's using jokes or ridicule to get a laugh regardless of what it does to the people being ridiculed. I'm going to tell you something. I see this on television a lot. And I'm saying on network TV. And there are certain, even certain political figures that over the last few years have just been the, the object of some of the worst offenses here when it comes to coarse jesting. I won't, I won't name names here, but you look at what Leno and Letterman and some of these guys do, and they just tell the most vile jokes. And there's not a dirty word in there. But it's just vile because it's just ripping people to shreds. And I know sometimes people do it to people that I like, and I, you know, it tempts me to come and do it to their people. We don't need that. It doesn't need to be done on either side. We need to think of the issues. We don't need to, need to tear people down. Some, some of the things that were said about a vice presidential candidate in the last election were vile. And I can't believe that anybody on either side would have put up with that, no matter whether you voted for that person or not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being able to, do, to, to express coarse jesting under what this word really means and never use a curse word. And, and the subject doesn't even have to be sex. But we can use irony and ridicule in a terrible, terrible way. Some, you know, I, I always have admired Bill Cosby as a comedian. He's getting a little older now. But 
In fact, I saw him in person one time. I saw him do a concert in person one time, a long, long time ago. It, 45 minutes, he, he, he has this kid come up just from the audience. 45 minutes, he just talks to this kid. It's hilarious. Didn't tear anybody down. Wasn't any kind of offensive terminology whatsoever. It was really funny. And when you left, you're, you're laughing. You feel better about yourself. But there's some comedians out there that make a living by just ripping people to shreds. And we laugh. And when we leave, you think, gosh, I don't know if I even should have laughed about that. You know, it almost makes us feel, feel like we're soiled even to be there. You know what I mean? And then there's some that are just over the top, filthy. We're not talking, I mean, that's, hopefully that's obvious. But coarse jesting could also be translated sarcastic ridicule. Now, what's the contrast to that? In verses 3 and 4, we see things that are obviously wrong. What's the contrast? The contrast is giving thanks. Who do you give thanks to? First and foremost, you give it to God. So it's a very, very severe contrast. But rather, but instead, on the other hand, if you, if you prefer, flippant speech dishonors God and hurts God's children. So it doesn't please him. It grieves his Holy Spirit. While speech that reflects the attitude of gratitude for the blessings that we've received honors God and edifies his children. Now, this is not all-inclusive. There are many, many more things Paul could have said here. There are many more things we could say. But these are representative. I hope you see that. These are things that anybody should be able to point to and say, you know what, that was love. This is not. This is not love. Even though we may say, I love you, to our neighbor's wife while we're attempting to seduce her, and we may really believe it, Paul says it's not love. It's the polar opposite. So we need to readjust our thinking. Now, verse 5 has been a challenge for many because they've taken it to mean that no one who has fornicated, no one who has practiced idolatry, no one who has practiced impurity in this life is going to go to heaven. Let's read the verse and you'll see what I mean. For this you know with certainty. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? There's no doubt about this. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. One extremely well-respected New Testament scholar said this about this passage. He said, This is not to say that a believer not, might not fall into one of these sins, but rather this concerns the person who is characterized by one or more of these sins. Now let's read the verse again. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. I don't see the word characterized in there at all. It just says flat out. If you're immoral, you're not seeing the kingdom of heaven. Now, if, if you're impure, if you're covetous, if you're an idolater, now listen, this is a very big net. Unless you think you can slip through it, the idolater one's going to catch us all. Because all of us have placed something above God at some point in our life. Now, don't panic. Think back to what the, the, the introduction I gave you a little while ago. Who is this written to? Believers. It is written to believers, not written to the unbeliever, to see if it's a test whether they're saved or not. This is written to believers. So there's, 
there are really a couple different ways we can understand this. First is that they would, they would have a place in the kingdom of God, but not have an inheritance. And there are many people that, that, that hold that that's exactly what's going on here, and it may very well. But there's another way to understand it, I think, a little bit better. There are people that, that I think wrongly understand this, and a lot of them are popular radio preachers, unfortunately. And this is what they're going to say. Okay, well, sure. Uh, of, of course Christians have committed immorality. Of course, it's such a broad term. How could you not? Of course Christians have committed impurity. Broad term, how could you not? Covetedness, well, okay, even I've done that, they may say. But, but an idolatry, yeah. But our lifestyle is not characterized by that. The same author I mentioned a moment ago, who, by the way, is a friend of mine, uh, Paul warns that those who live, whose lives are characterized by immorality, impurity, and greed, even though they may claim to be Christians, are not included in the kingdom of God. The operative word there is characterized. The problem is the passage doesn't say that. That is being inserted into the passage so that they can try to make sense of it. But it, that's not the way to do it. There's nothing about a life that's characterized by anything here. There's no justification exegetically for adding that word. It's almost as if we've forgotten the grace of God. You see, all sins, past, present, and future, every one of them was judged on the cross and forgiven the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Every one of them. May I be blunt, I already have tonight, let's just do it. Again, that means whether or not as a Christian you have had aberrant sexual behavior once or whether you've had aberrant sexual behavior a hundred times. If you have trusted Jesus Christ to grant you eternal life and to forgive your sins, all hundred times have been forgiven. Every single one. Now, that's not, I'm not endorsing that, I'm not encouraging it, but it's been forgiven. And if your sins have been forgiven, you do have an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, at least as Paul is using the term in Ephesians. You are going to be in heaven. So actually, I think there's a better way to understand that than this simply blessing. I think Paul is talking about either being in heaven or not being in heaven here. But what he's doing is he's going back to these terms, and he's describing the unbeliever in verse 5, which, by the way, my friend would have no problem with. But you see, the believer's sins have been forgiven. We have, we have just about enough time to do this. Let's turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 22, and I want you to, to take a look at a shocking passage. I mean, this passage is, if you're sleepy, this will wake you up. This is just a shocking passage. If you're a child of God, you have been forgiven, and you will never pay the eternal penalty of sin, no matter how often you do a sin commit a sin. You see, God doesn't look at you as a Christian. He doesn't look at you as an, as, as an idolater or as a fornicator. He, look at, he looks at you as someone who has been forgiven from that sin, as one who committed that sin who is now a forgiven person. Now, so, I hope we would, let me just give you a quick background. This is at the end of David's life. This is not at the beginning. This is at the end of David's life. He's probably close to 70 years old by the time he writes this, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 21. I just have time to give you the, the high points here. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 21, at the end of David's life. 
The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has paid me back. Now let's just stop. Are you out of your mind, David? I thought David was a murderer and an adulterer. But yet here he says, according to the cleanness of my hands. You see, God doesn't look at David as a murderer or as an adulterer. He looks at David as someone who's been forgiven of that. He doesn't classify him with that terminology. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not acted wickedly against my God. It's almost like, what are you talking about, David? He's talking about the whole of his life there, but he realizes he's forgiven. For all his ordinances were before me. As for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Is this the same guy that we, that we read about earlier in this same book? Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the, my cleanness. Now, here's the phrase as we almost get ready to close. Before his eyes. The world may never let David forget what he did. But God doesn't view David as a murderer. He views David as a child who committed murder who has been forgiven. When God looks at David, he sees the blood of Christ covering up that sin. To use Old Testament imagery. He doesn't consider him a murderer. In the same way, briefly, back in Ephesians chapter 5, if you'll allow me about two, two and a half more minutes, this is really important that I clear this up so I don't leave you uh, confused. This is not a warning to someone who thinks that they may be saved but really isn't. This is a person who's not saved. And this is terminology, this no immoral, no impure person, no covetous man who is an idolater. Yes, that is a person who is not saved. God doesn't view you as an idolater. He views you as a Christian who has committed idolatry but not as an idolator. Two different things. What Paul is doing is here, he's going back to the, the prevailing culture, and he's saying, listen, you don't want to behave like that, like these people who are fornicators, who are idolaters. That's, that's germane to their culture. Don't go back. That's something else. Because over there, they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. You don't want any part of that. That's not who you are now. In verse 6, to make it more clear, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. As a child of God, you will never be the recipient of the wrath of God. Christ took that for you. You're not one of the sons of disobedience. You're a child of obedience. That's primarily the salvation of Paul has in mind in these two verses the believer whose sins have not been forgiven. The unbeliever, I'm sorry, I just said it wrong. Paul has in mind the unbeliever, the unbeliever whose sins have not been forgiven, asserting that the believer should not behave in a way that marks the unregenerate. Again, he's talking to believers in this letter. He's not talking to people who think they're believers and then aren't. No, that's been inserted into the text to try to make sense of it. You don't have to do that. Yes, he's talking about people that are on their way to hell because their sins haven't been forgiven. Even though they were judged at the cross, they have not been forgiven. And Paul says, don't act like that. That's not who you are. Don't go back to that category. That's what unbelievers do. Don't act like that. They are sons of disobedience, which is a term in the scriptures for unbelievers. I promised you we, we would finish in two and a half minutes, so let's, let's finish with this. 
the Christian life should be marked by love, as was modeled by Christ, not by immoral behavior that was modeled by the sons of disobedience. Well, we'll talk about, we'll talk about that a little bit more next Wednesday night. Heavenly Father, we are we're so appreciative of the warning. We're humbled by it. We know that we've been forgiven, and we will be forgiven in the future as well, that we'll never pay the eternal penalty of sin, but, but boy, our eyes are open to the fact that other things that we can do when we walk out of fellowship with thee. May our lives not be marked by the sins of the culture, by these things that are anything but love, by selfishness, but may our lives be marked by selflessness, as was modeled by our Lord Jesus Christ. In his, in his name that we'll ask it, amen.